Hello, and welcome to Clean Tech Talk, Alacrity Canada's podcast series focusing on the clean technology sector. Our host for this episode is Peter Vandergraaf, a serial technology entrepreneur who has successfully launched, financed, operated, and sold multiple technology companies in his over 30 years of experience. Currently acting as chairman, director, consultant, or investor in over 10 companies, Peter dedicates his time to supporting the growth of innovative startups through other organizations, including our very own Alacrity Foundation. Today, we're talking to Dean Wenham of Ocean Diagnostics and Scott Beattie of Marine Labs about the future of our oceans. Dean Wenham is CEO at Ocean Diagnostics. This Victoria, BC-based startup is developing technologies to help tackle the problem of microplastics pollution in our oceans. With estimates placing plastic in the ocean as more common than fish by the year 2050, Ocean Diagnostics is developing and offering technologies and services that enable scientists, governments, environmental agencies, and even everyday citizens to collect data about our oceans and waterways. Scott Beattie is founder and CEO at Marine Labs. The company is transforming how we interact with the changing ocean by providing real-time data and analysis from fleets of compact, rugged, cloud-connected marine sensors. Using high-resolution, real-time information coupled with powerful processing algorithms on wind, wave, and other sensor data, Marine Labs is optimizing maritime operations, improving marine safety, and building coastal resilience. Welcome, Dean and Scott, to our podcast. We're very pleased to have you here. So what I'm going to do is ask some questions here and learn a little bit more about you and your businesses. And uh, as I said, I'll rotate uh, the questions first uh, to Dean and then back to Scott and then vice versa. So our some of our listeners are would-be entrepreneurs and they're always very keen on what I call origin stories, which is how do, how do companies start? Who comes up with the ideas? How do they come up with the idea? So Dean, I'd like to start with you. And maybe you could help us understand a little bit on how Ocean Diagnostics came to be. Sure. I got into the sector because I'm sort of, I'm not, I'm not from the sector. I, I'm not um, 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 an ocean scientist. I'm, a, I'm a, actually a pharmacologist. So I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 25 years in biotech and pharmaceuticals. I have a PhD in pharmacology. So very, very far removed really from, from ocean sciences. But over many years, I've become a sailor, a diver. I'm really passionate about the oceans um, and environment in general. And, and I kind of witnessed firsthand the degradation uh, of the oceans, um, climate change. um, But in particular, what caught my eye was like the pollution issue, microplastics and plastics. So wanting to sort of, as a scientist at heart, wanted to get involved in this, I said, well, is there any way I can do microplastic research from, a, from, from the back of my sailboat? And started looking into this field and realized that the, the, the available approaches and, and technologies were so, um, were so archaic, not fit for purpose, labor intensive and costly, that it was you know, quite difficult for me to do it. And therefore it must be very difficult for others, including researchers in the field. So I got in touch with a researcher at Northeastern University in Boston, a guy called Ethan Edson, who was a really a young, smart engineer uh, who was working in the space of like sensors for microplastics. And we hit it off and one thing led to another and, and we started a company. And that's how Ocean Diagnostics uh, became a company. Thanks, Dean. And by the way, that is a common way for businesses to start. Uh, an entrepreneur has a personal experience and a pain point, 
and decides to build a business around it. So thanks for sharing that, Dean. Um, Scott, how about over to you? How did Marine Labs come to be? Sure. Uh, well, uh, first off, thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. Um, so thinking about all this, I mean, I've been involved in the ocean my whole life. Um, I've kind of been bitten by the surfing bug for 20 years and I've uh, done a lot of canoe camping and more recently sailing. And so predicting waves and tide and wind are kind of a deep seated passion and that it really affects you if you get it wrong. And so I started to get this sort of personal interest in how that all works. And then kind of through that time, I uh, went through engineering at uh, in mechanical engineering at UBC and then moved into um, University of Victoria for a master's and PhD. And I, in the, in my research work, I studied ocean wave energy. So it kind of matched my passion for surfing with uh, academic interests and, and interests for renewable energy. And um, so I did a lot of experimental work and published papers in that field in ocean engineering, and then uh, became a consultant and did uh, work for US Department of Energy's wave energy prizes um, and got into oceanography and marine data because of wave energy. Um, but when I was a consultant, we were kind of looking for measurement data to validate models that we were running um, and found that there wasn't really anything on the market that would provide that. Um, similar to Dean, I mean, we, we found that, you know, your typical um, approach to capturing marine data is really expensive, involves big ships with lots of people on them. And we kind of realized there's an opportunity to design a solution to that. So it was kind of to scratch my own itch and also partly just really excited about waves in general. Thank you, Scott. And by the way, just to, to comment, those are another two very common ways for businesses to start. One is commercializing academic research. And the other one is, you know, sort of firsthand experiences with a problem as a consultant and then looking for ways to productize that and systematize that. Uh, and build a more scalable business. So thank you both for, for those origin stories. So I want to shift a little bit to sort of customers and key use cases because, you know, we've sort of broadly described your businesses, but I'm wondering if you can drill down and help our listeners understand sort of specific use cases, customer problems and customers that are low hanging fruit for you. And uh, Scott, we'll flip the order and start with you. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we've got two sort of directions that we provide our data. We, we provide um, real-time data for um, maritime operations. So I'll give a really hyper-local example, but you can think about this on a global scale. Um, a company like BC Ferries is trying to send a ferry in the middle of the winter across the Strait of Georgia, and they end up finding a lack of data. Um, so they're, you know, they're, the, the data that they can get is from a, a system that's 50 to 100 kilometers away, and it's publishing only once an hour. And that data, according to it, sounds like they should send their ferry. But it turns out when they get out in the middle, because the data was old by the time they were looking at it, they actually can't dock the ship at their terminal and so they end up having to keep people on the ferry overnight um, feeding them all kinds of fun ferry food and what have you and uh, being a bc based company or if you live in bc you'll get that joke but uh, but anyway so so they have this problem where they have this high cost of a lack of data so that's that real-time side and then on the aggregated data side and analysis product side, we also have a climate resilience problem where um, a place like uh, Port of Vancouver in 50 years, it could be underwater periodically throughout the year. 
And so um, there's an issue with uncertainty around that and how sea level rise is going to affect infrastructure. And so what we need is long-term data sets from multiple locations around all of this infrastructure in order to solve that problem. Terrific. Thanks, Scott. Those sound like uh, really well-honed and well-focused activities. So Dean, shifting to you, help us understand sort of your key use cases and customers. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to sort of understand, I guess, that we need to maybe take a little step back and think about what the, what the issue is uh, that we are trying to solve or be a part of, of trying to solve. So, you know, plastic, uh, single-use plastic is, 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 uh, is obviously very, pretty well known now as an issue. And it's estimated by like 2050 that, that there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. And this is a scary thought, I think. And to further sort of compound this issue, um, plastic does, doesn't go away. It gets smaller. It sort of degrades into smaller fragments. And these fragments just get smaller and smaller into pieces of plastics called microplastics and microplastics even get smaller than that and they get infinitely small into nanoplastics you can imagine so these tiny things and early evidence seems to indicate that that, that as plastic fragments in the ocean it, it sinks so it ends up kind of through the water column and and into the depths of the ocean so in order to change the way humans behave around plastic and, and plastic and pollution, we need a better understanding of the science, uh, what's going on. Um, and and as, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of technologies that are, that are available that are really now are archaic and not designed for the purpose. So we're, we're as a company, Ocean Diagnostics is, is really bringing forward several approaches. Uh, and we've got sort of two, like I say, two key angles that we're that we're working on right now. One is really to, to develop and, and bring to market cutting edge, design for purpose, intelligent technology that employs, you know, things like a machine-based learning to allow scientists to quickly, robustly, and cost-effectively and collect and analyze samples of microplastics in the ocean versus what they have available to them now, which is technology that's, and I'd say technology is a big word for it, is, is archaic, is not designed for purpose. Um, I mean, uh, when, I, when I first got into this, and I wanted to say, well, how do I collect a microplastic sample from the ocean? Scientists are taking um, nets that are designed for plankton research. They're towing it behind a boat, and then they're pulling the pieces of plastic out with, with tweezers and measuring them under a microscope. Well, the ocean's a big place. How are we ever going to map the ocean with technology like this? So the first thing is, is a technology approach to enable uh, people, scientists, governments, uh, and, uh, and other, other key sort of players to measure and characterize the plastics. Second, I think key really is, is a data platform to not only allow all of the scientists, all of the researchers, and all the citizens in our community who are interested in this issue to sort of um, put, put their data out there on a platform uh, where they can compare and contrast their data around the globe um, and visualize it. But, but it also gives a way for us to start to sort of standardize ways. So we're, as Ocean Diagnostics, we're developing standardized methodologies. For example, we're, we're offering services. So, um, so scientists can measure microplastics. So if you think about the world I come from originally, which is in the pharmaceutical field, if we, if, we, if we run a clinical trial and we've got 
patients all over the world as part of a clinical trial, their samples, their blood and their, and their samples would be shipped to a central lab. And that central lab would analyze all of those samples in a very standardized manner. In microplastic research and ocean science in general, that's not happening. The samples are being measured in a whole bunch of different ways, making it very difficult to compare. So we see ourselves as becoming a central lab so scientists can ship us their samples, we can analyze in a standardized way. Not only that, then we can put them up on a data portal so everyone can visualize those. And we think these are very important, important approaches. Thanks, Dean. Uh, cool story. Um, and again, we'll start with you for the next question. So you've been describing customers and use cases. So again, our audience is really keen to learn how you go to market. So Dean, starting with you, how do you find your customers? Is it a sort of a direct sales model? You're aware of them from publications? Is it a web-based broadcasting mechanism? Are there channel partners? Is it you know trade shows or associations? Help us understand how you find your customers. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm sort of asking that to myself also. Um, so we're an we're a emerging company. So if you was to ask for an industry report on uh, microplastic sampling technology and analyzing technology, you're going to find nothing out there because this is a nascent, a nascent industry. Um, you know, we, we have academic re researchers who are kind of interested in, in the field. But when you get beyond those academic researchers, because plastic pollution and microplastic pollution is not regulated um, in, any, in any way right now, um, it's hard to answer the question, how do we go to market? Who is our market? So again, we don't have a product on the market yet. We will do in, in several months. So to answer your question, how are we going to attempt to actually go to market? So first of all, the most important thing for us is establishing scientific and credibility of our products. So we are initially selling products to, to scientists to displace uh, or give alternatives to what they're doing now. So we're aligning with what we call kind of early adopters or like beta testers who are going to be involved in testing our products and generating scientific data around them and therefore producing scientific credibility. The next will be to demonstrate the, the kind of the usability and the economic benefits of our products. So right now, if you're a scientist doing microplastic research, you're in the lab um, for weeks or maybe months analyzing the samples coming from your, from your research. You've been out on the boat for a week and you've been taking samples. That can take months and months to analyze. So we want to show that we can do that in some cases hours, in hours or in, or in a matter of days. So, so, so that's going to be important, showing the economic and usability benefits. And then in kind of in parallel, obviously going through a combination of inbound and outbound marketing techniques, so directly reaching out to end users and potential clients, creating content on our website to be able to attract people with interest in this field to, to us by giving them content they're interested in and therefore attracting them to our, to our products. You know, as I said, early adopters, engaging with industry and really engaging with as many different players in fields such as governments, environmental agencies, foundation, aquaculture businesses, food security businesses, to really determine, are they understanding the importance of microplastics? Is it important now? Will it become important in the future? And then how do we actually align our business services and, and, and capabilities and our products to, um, to address those markets? But it's, it's a tough one. 
Yeah. And by the way, Dean, thanks. Entrepreneurs who are in businesses in new industries and new use cases will, will understand the challenges of trying to break into a new market when nobody knows it's there. So thanks for that, Dean. Um, Scott, sort of flipping to you, how do you go to market? I mean, you mentioned, for example, BC Ferry. So I think we can kind of understand that you see a ferry go by and you can reach out to them. And maybe this is common for ship operators, but just help us understand how you go to market. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I empathize with Dean. Um, we're in our third year as a company where we were founded in 2017. And um, in the beginning, we did a pretty serious job of customer discovery and started talking to everybody and learning what their pains are. And we kind of identified ports, ferries, coastal engineering as our key segments and really took a, put a lot of effort into focusing on them. And um, I, as well, we, we worked with universities and um, by 2018, we were measuring 10 meter waves off the open Pacific with our first product. And so with a beta tester with the University of Victoria, we, were, we, were, we had a great relationship there and we were able to achieve this technical validation that allowed us to move forward with confidence. And so from then on, um, we were able to provide that sort of technical uh, backing that we needed to move forward with selling that product. And so, um, so now we've really executed a, a enterprise sales type model where we're um, trade shows we were relying on quite heavily, uh, relationship building. Um, the sales process is quite slow because these are big decisions, but at the same time, uh, I think the value that we provide to these agencies and enterprises is, is quite high. And so that, that's, that's how I would say it. Um, enterprise sales would be the sort of category for our model. Got it. Thanks, Scott. Makes sense. So maybe drilling down a little bit. So now you found a customer and you're trying to describe, you know, the return on investment if they adopt your technology. I mean, that was a great example of a BC ferry. So a ferry that can't dock and has to feed, <laughs> feed uh, passengers for a day, that's an expensive proposition. But maybe more in general, you could talk about how do you sort of quantify the benefits for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we did a huge uh, research into the um, identified marine accidents and incidents on record in the last 10 years in Canada and um, started looking at whether the incidents were weather related. So we really dug into the data and then started looking as well into what are the damages that are incurred on by these companies when they have a lack of data. So for example, a ship may run into a terminal or when docking, it might take on some damage. And what are the costs of those, that, those damages, um, that kind of thing. Safety is a really hard thing to put ROI on. And that's something that we don't really try to do. Uh, we just make sure that um, safety records are built into what we're doing. But, uh, but we're seeing return on investments based on damage, minimized fuel losses, you know, helping with go, no-go decisions of these maritime operators. They can save money because they don't have to send ferries. They don't have to risk ferries or vessels of any kind. And so in the hundreds of percent easily, um, given that if, if they had the data at hand to be able to make decisions quicker, et cetera. So, so that's where I would go to on that. And then on the, on the aggregated data side or the analysis product side, we're seeing uh, great ROI for coastal engineering companies 
who may not have field teams or may not be able to do the field work necessary um, in order to get the validation they need to bring certainty to their coastal flood assessments. And so we're able to provide uh, really high value for, for um, basically um, engineering firms and coastal engineering firms, which in turn benefits municipalities and infrastructure owners and that kind of thing. And so it's hard to put numbers on that ROI at the moment, but I mean, uh, one number that I can give that's quite staggering is um, if you were to look at the coastal flood hazard um, just for the city of Miami, and you were to look at the um, error in the flood height, an error of plus minus 0.75 meters turns into a insurance error outlay of plus minus 1 billion. So we're talking about that uncertainty translating to dollars in a staggering way. Terrific, that's a great example. Thanks, Scott. Uh, so Dean, um, flipping to you, you described before that if I'm an academic and I'm analyzing water samples, you can save me a mountain of time. And uh, presumably that allows me to get my project done and apply for a new grant and, and keep going. But are there other use cases, other ROIs, for example, is there informing government or the packaging industry of rules or, or policies? Is there um, any, anything beyond that comes to mind or that's in your sights uh, beyond saving time for the scientists? Yeah, there's lots, I think. First of all, I mean, just, just echoing something that was just mentioned just a moment ago by Scott, safety is important when you're out at sea doing science. So we're working on, for example, an autonomous sensor, which would be deployed into the ocean. It could be deployed from, a, from an under, autonomous underwater vehicle on an autonomous vessel on a buoy system um, in the ocean. And this, this, this type of sensor, uh, which, which one could maybe we could call sort of the sort of holy grail of sort of microplastic research would be able to continuously in real time um, uh, measure microplastics and not only measure them, sort of count them and, and, and show their size and, and proportions and, and color, but also would chemically characterize them, would tell you what type of plastic it actually is. So this type of a sensor, um, uh, if we're successful bringing this, this to market, is going to play a lot into the safety issues of going to sea and collecting this type of data since they can be deployed you know, on, on, on unmanned vessels and, and buoy systems and so forth. So I think that's, that's a major sort of ROI, um, which is, again, as was mentioned before, um, is very difficult to um, quantify. I think the ROI related to food security. Um, so if you think you, if you're, an, you're a farm, you're an aquaculture farmer, and you're producing seafood of some kind, the ability to be able to demonstrate that your particular seafood and product contains less microplastics than like a competitor's, I think is going to be extremely important. I once read, and I don't know if this is a fact, as a scientist, I'm saying, I don't, I don't know if it's a fact, but when you eat a bowl of mussels, you're eating a thousand pieces of, of like microplastics. Well, if that's, if that's true, that becomes a major concern for anybody who's eating any kind of seafood. So being able to differentiate yourself in the marketplace as a manufacturer of seafood I think is going to be um, really, really key. And, and, and then I think really the, 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 the last point I want to make is, is about data and access um, to um, data. So right now, if you're a policymaker, an environmental agency, someone who wants to influence change, how do you access that data? So if the topic is, is, is microplastics in the ocean, how do you access that, 
that that and kind of data. So yeah, there's a bit in the public and domain, um, and then you have to go to to a scientific journal, which a you may not have access to because uh, it, it costs forty dollars to download an article, and b you may not have the the technical understanding to be able to to extract the information you need from a very technical article. So we see ourselves in a way um, by developing a data portal. Uh, um, which is will be accessible to anybody on the planet and making that data accessible understandable uh, a way to to actually spread knowledge and and, and information about the issue and date hard data about the the microplastic issue that will eventually um, evoke change um, or allow or give policymakers environmentalists the ability to to influence change and the roi on that I mean, is unquantifiable Great. Thanks, Dean. By the way, I don't think I'll ever look at a muscle the same way again after your story. <laughs> um, so I want to shift a little bit to the sales cycle. We talked about how long that can be. Investors are always very interested in this topic because, you know, that drives how quickly revenue gets generated and, and companies become profitable. Dean, this may be a little early for you given the stage of the company, but any comments you want to make about the sales cycle? Uh, how long does it take to go from interest to closing a deal? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can comment on that. We see re revenue for our business coming in different types or, or from different sources. Obviously, as we've talked about, we have the academic re researchers and, and, you know, and if we can put products to them that are so affordable that, that, that they don't have to get special approval or apply for special grants to be able to purchase that equipment, or those capabilities from us, then we feel the sales cycle from that is going to be pretty rapid. You know, so it could be from 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 introduction of a product to a to, to a purchase in a matter of of weeks. But where we really see our real key revenue come in, I mean, sub substantial revenue, is in partnerships. So when we partner with a with a government, we partner with an environmental agency or a foundation who has a mission to go out and do X Y Z in the plastics in the microplastics field, for example, um, um, in the ocean. And we feel that those, those, um, those negotiations, um, having come from the pharmaceutical industry, um, from, and, my, and my business in the past was in contract research, in customized contract research, where we sold pharmaceutical research and projects or, or services for those types of projects to the pharma industry, you know, working in multi-millions of dollars of deals then th those negotiations take a long time. And I feel this will be similar for ocean diagnostics in the, um, in the field of, of selling customized projects or, or, or partnerships. So I think those types of sales cycles are going to be in the many months, but, but I think certainly not within the years. Got it. Thanks, Dean. Scott, how about you? What's the sales cycle like in your business? With big enterprises, I mean, it's well known that these can be long sales cycles. So, um, you know, these can be easily a year long from first meeting someone or first being introduced to progressing through our sales pipeline and having, you know, demos and, and discussions. Um, and so, so, yeah, roughly a year for the enterprises. Um, and as far as the aggregated data side goes, and in general, what we're seeing is that on our first projects, we're we take our customer interactions really seriously and deliver everything we say we will and uh, really go above and beyond in terms of communication and making sure our platform's working for the customer. And so what we're seeing is 
other customers kind of saying, wow, it looks great over there. Could we try this? And then that's shortening our sales cycle. So we're experiencing some, some great traction kind of because we've put a lot of work into early customer service and, and uh, really treating our customers with uh, a ton of integrity and respect. Yeah, thanks, Scott. There's nothing like a reference to move a customer along. Thank you. Um, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. So, Scott, again, this one's over to you. So, you know, the title like founder or entrepreneur or CEO sounds glamorous to a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of people are excited to be one of those in the future. This, this is a kind of a different question where what was the biggest surprise from when you were embarking on this journey and what you thought a day in the life would be like? To compared to what it actually turned out to be. So Scott, I'll start with you first. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And, and coming from a technical background as a technical founder, I think that that, you know, might answer that question a little differently than someone who came maybe from a business background and then founded a company. So I'd love to hear different uh, um, opinions or answers to this question. But uh, in general, um, you know, I, I thought that a, a originally that you know we would get to really answer those technical questions that are interesting with lots of time and space and uh, use all the available information and really make great uh, you know decisions and take our time with decisions and so the biggest change from something like graduate school engineering or you know basically any other job is that we don't have time to wait. We have to integrate things so quickly. And so the pace is just much, much faster than I was used to before. And it's kind of exhilarating and it's motivating. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Um, I'm doing a lot of admin work now, a lot of financial stuff, a lot of sales stuff. So I, I almost envy the engineering team because they get to work on the fun engineering part. And, uh, but that said, I'm really enjoying the sales side and I'm learning a lot and um, enjoying the relationships part of it. Um, and so an, another aspect that I would say is that, you know, if you look at what's going on in ocean technology, the big, one of the big surprises for me is everyone's making it up as they go along, even the big companies. And I find that very, very motivating. If you start looking at the histories of some of the big companies, maybe your competitors, et cetera, you start realizing they were you not long ago. And now these teams, they have their flaws. And, and so there's a lot that can be done. And the fact that everyone's trying their best and making it up as, as they go along kind of allows you to take that pressure off as an entrepreneur and um, allows you to sort of execute your concept and obviously take into account what's going on around in the marketplace and et cetera, but at the same time, trust your own vision. And so I found that really motivating. Thanks, Scott. Really uh, appreciate that comment. I call it cadence, where you have to move quickly because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the world doesn't wait for you. So thanks yeah. for that. So Dean, flipping over to you, what was the biggest surprise for your day in the life compared to what you thought it would be like? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I'll kind of answer the question in two steps. One is becoming a CEO 15 years ago from a more, uh, from more sort of academic or, or bench scientist in, in the farm industry and, and that, you know, I always reminisce about that experience is that, is that, that, that day you all of a sudden go from being a, a bench scientist to a, to a CEO, you're not actually a, like a CEO at that point. You've got the title, but you haven't, you haven't earned it yet. And it, it, it took, takes many years. And, and I ran that company and sold that company, that farm student company. It took like 15 years to build and sell. And um, over the years, 
you know, you do, you, you do everything. You, you, uh, I mean, and, I, and I'll mirror the, the previous comments. There's no time. The time is now. Um, um, and you have to do it fast, but in a way that, um, is, is, is done with, a, with the appropriate level of like quality. So we, we call it in pharmaceuticals phase, phase appropriate and quality, which means, you know, if you don't need a Rolls Royce, but you just need a BMW, then you just bought a BMW. You know, that's, that's the concept. Don't overbuild it if you don't have to. I think it takes a long time. You have to do, wear many hats and do everything and demonstrate to your team that you're willing to do whatever it takes. But eventually you find yourself in the administration, the financing, the fundraising, and uh, you know, the scientists, the engineers are having the, the real fun. But when I jumped out of pharmaceuticals, I've not completely jumped out of it, but, but I'm sort of jumped most of three quarters of me out of it into ocean, into the ocean sector where I am now. Uh, and coming an entre entrepreneur in this space, I was really quite surprised because I had the contrast with the pharmaceutical industry. So first of all, in the pharma industry, there are thousands of, of early face companies. I mean, you can go to conferences and have one-to-one -one meetings with, with thousands of companies. And in the ocean sector, in the technology sort of like sector, there's not, not many companies. So that's the, fir the first realization is, 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 the, is the sort of the sort of like a playing field in which we play in is really quite small. And, and then further to that, in the particular field we were going into, which was sort of the issue of microplastics, we were unable to find anybody who has a specialized business in that area. So is that good or is that bad? It's kind of what worrying in some respects uh, that, that either we're, we're chasing the wrong, wrong objective or people just don't care about the issue. So, so, so they're sort of my first experiences and I've only been in the ocean sector for a year and a half now. So I'm really a, a newbie to, to sort of align those differences between say pharmaceuticals and healthcare and ocean science um, and technology. I think one of the biggest differences that maybe explains why they're so different is the lack of funding. So there's so much money in the pharma healthcare se sector being invested and injected. Whereas in the environmental sciences and ocean science, uh, it's nascent, relatively nascent and, and, and lack of funding and available money, I think really. And, and, and I think, you know, fear, you know, investors, fear of, you know, I, that they understand the ROI or, or the risks certainly associated with healthcare and pharmaceuticals. But what about environments, environmental sciences, clean tech and blue tech? Uh, there's no models, there's no playbook here. So investors are very, very, um, very, very cautious to get into the space. And I, and I think that's a challenge that we have as entrepreneurs in the space is, 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 is raising money. Thanks, Dean. And by the way, that uh, is very common amongst uh, people who I ask this question to, what's the biggest surprise? And they say, oh, I spend all day long chasing money. So uh, thanks for that. Rolling along, how about um, a discussion of what's your next key milestone? This just helps uh, your listeners understand what stage your company's at. So, Dean, if we start with you, what's the next key milestone you're chasing? Yeah, so I mean, so as, as I mentioned earlier, we're really an emerging company. We've only really been bricks and mortar business for about a year. Um, so we're super early. So we are initially targeting sort of the, the low hanging fruit or the, the easiest way to market is marketing to the academic researchers who need better technology and approaches to their research. The, the more challenging markets 
as we talked about, uh, as I talked about earlier, where we're at governments, environmental agencies, foundations, and so forth, um, uh, where, where we feel that they are, those markets uh, are, more, although that market is more difficult to penetrate. So our entry into the marketplace, which we hope will occur over the next six months, um, we'll be launching a couple of different products. We have an imaging system that's gonna cost hundreds of dollars, not thousands of dollars, that will be able to enable uh, science scientists to characterize physically microplastics from samples in the ocean and as opposed to using microscopes and tweezers and, and, and days and weeks to quantify them, uh, we, have a, we have a device that they can do it in, in minutes. So getting that, that product to, to market and getting, that, and getting the, the word out and the, and the marketing done to, to get customer engagement there um, is, 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 is important. The sort of second milestone related is taking samples of microplastic at depth. Right now, if, if you're a scientist and want to go and, and measure microplastics at, at 100 meters from the, from the surface of the ocean, you need a, a research vessel, you need a crane or an A-frame to lower a, a huge expensive piece of equipment into the ocean. And, and researchers don't have access or very rarely have access. In COVID, especially right now, there's no research vessels going out or very few spots on those vessels are limited. So all of this being said, We've developed uh, a, a sampler, uh, which we call a, a profiler, that can go down to 150 meters, but it can be de deployed from a small vessel or even, a, even like a kayak. So a single person uh, can deploy that. So we are taking those two products to market. They're in, they're in the beta testing phase now, and we hope to have those in place in the next, in the next six months in the market. And in parallel, we're engaging the voice of governments environmental agencies, investors, thought leaders in the field say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is our initial entry to the marketplace. This is the low hanging fruit, but we have a much bigger picture here. Help us think, help guide us in where we should be taking our business and our company and how we engage with those other markets. And that's going to be uh, the next milestone is to engage with those, with, with those types of groups. Got it, Dean. I call that the steak and sizzle story. So thanks for that. So Scott, jumping to you, what are your next uh, key milestones? Sure, uh, well, so we have a couple of uh, new sensors that we've integrated with our system. And so we're excited to bring those to market uh, quite soon, uh, within a few months. And I think the other side of it is, look, we have a fleet that is continent wide right now. So we have lots of units in the Pacific coast of Canada. We have some in um, Atlantic Canada. And we have a couple of units in San Diego. And so I'd like to see a doubling of our fleet in the next year. Um, so that's really a major business milestone. It represents scaling and it represents our ability to export to the US. Um, so, so yeah, there's lots of work to be done there. Um, basically, how do we adapt to this new era of non-trade show, trade show, um, you know, communicating via Zoom breakout rooms, what have you, webinars, that kind of thing. So a lot of work to be done on the sort of outreach side, um, raising some awareness of our product. Um, but yeah, we're really excited. We feel like we're in a scaling mode at this point. And so the major milestone is essentially proving the scalability. Great. Thanks, Scott. Okay. Well, that was, those were some great uh, stories you guys have told as, as we've learned about your businesses. So just to close off, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to make any other comments or observations that you think uh, our listeners would like to hear about. So Scott, the, the floor is yours. Sure, thank you. Uh, so, I, you know, I think 
something that's come across just even viscerally this week with how the fact that we have the entire west coast of the continent covered in smoke and that's kind of being felt even in over across even into New York and Montreal and, and so we've got the continent covered in wildfire smoke and that's all climate change driven and I think um, something that's coming up for me is that I, you know I remember 80s and 90s when um, the idea of being nice to the environment was wrapped up in the word sustainability and um, right now I feel like we you know the we missed an opportunity there and so now we've got something that we need to do we need to adapt to the changing climate. And so I think that actions related to that are now wrapped up in the words climate resilience. But I think that that isn't really being taken seriously enough. I think that if you start looking at the fact that many of our coastal infrastructure multiplied by all the coastlines around the world are gonna be experiencing degradation beyond what we can imagine. It's something that our children need to deal with. I think we need to start collecting data for that. And that's that's really what's motivating me. And other things are too, but I'd like to leave the statement that we should be really looking at what climate resilience means for us. Terrific. That's a great, great comment. Thanks, Scott. So Dean, over to you. What else would you like us to know? I mean, I think my my lines are very are very similar to tell the truth. I mean, I, I look at it from from the point of view that oceans are our lifeblood. Um, you know, oceans feed us, they regulate our climate, our temperature, they generate 50% of the oxygen we breathe. Uh, they're a foundation of, of the world, of much of the world's economy. You know, more, I think the number is more than 3 billion people rely on the oceans every day for their food and livelihoods. Um, yet climate change, you know, plastic-like pollution is seriously messing, messing all of that up. And, um, and, we, and, and it's making a, di a direct threat. Uh, to, to not only the ocean's health, but humans, us, who so intimately re rely on it. The link between, between human life and the ocean, I think, is a message that, that I think needs to be out there more for, for everyday people, not just scientists who understand it intimately, but everyday people need to understand that and then get involved. You know, and, and certainly one of the areas that, that we, are, we, we want to get involved in as a company are cautious to do so because it's a whole, whole new sort of like a kettle of fish, as it were, is citizen science. So we, we, we feel that there's not enough research, government research, um, environmental researchers out there to really map the problem of, let's say, in this instance, microplastics in the ocean. Because the oceans and waterways of our, of our planet are so, are so vast. So we think that engaging everyday people in doing science is going to be extremely important in generating the data that's going to shape our future. Um, and, and we are, um, I, I would encourage anybody who's got experience in this field to reach out, out to me and, and, and help us think through this, is how do we do that? How do we engage, not, again, not a business to business type of business that, 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 that I'm used to, but going out and, and, and engaging everyday people to get involved in, in this field, but then come and purchase and products from us that can allow this whole thing to move forward. People need to understand that, that, that our life as humans are so, is so intimately linked to the ocean. Um, and we have to, you know, be very much involved in being sort of caretakers of the ocean and not just like I'm takers from the ocean. I think that's a sort of my last sort of message. 
Uh, great way to leave that. Thanks, Dean. And thanks, Scott, for sharing your stories. They're really fascinating. I hope we get the chance to kind of circle back for a refresh sometime down the road. And then, of course, in the meantime, congratulations so far and absolutely best of luck in the future. To find out more about Ocean Diagnostics, please visit oceandiagnostics.com. For more on Marine Labs, visit marinelabs.io. For details on Alacrity's Cleantech program, visit alacritycanada.com and look for it under the program section. Thanks for listening and catch us next time on Cleantech Talk with Alacrity Canada.